Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. This on? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, I hope you do. Leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to www.askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. But today, my friends, once again, I am joined by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Bill. Hello. Good to be here. Um, so, you know, Bill, a lot of the time when I'm specifically a science writer, not a science editor and not working in my capacity as your dear friend, I work on the space beat a lot. I love the space, space stories, beat. Ast- astronomy stories. I'm always hoping to learn something about the universe that I'd never heard before. One thing that blew my mind the first time I learned it a few years ago is that the moon has a distinctive smell. According to Jack Schmidt from Apollo 17, moon dust, when you bring it inside and it sticks to your boots and the suit, when you bring it inside the space capsule, it smells like gunpowder. And I'm thinking like, why? Is there an actual chemical connection? So I'm so excited to have someone on our podcast right here, right now, who can dig into these mysteries of smell and start to kind of help us understand how smell connects to the universe around us. Connects us to the universe, my friend. It does. Yes, our guest today is Harold McGee. He's a writer and researcher best known as the author of On Food and Cooking, The Science and Lore of the Kitchen. But his new book is called Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells. Harold McGee, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Harold? Yes, absolutely, Bill. Wonderful to be here. Corey, wonderful to be speaking with you, too. Your book about the kitchen, uh, how to say, found you fame and fortune. Well, <laughs> well why, fame anyway. <laughs> so why is the next book, why is the sequel uh, about smell? Well, uh, I 
began it thinking that I was going to be writing a book about flavors, about the flavors of foods, because I thought, you know, that's the most interesting thing to most people. Um, and smell is the most important sense that we have in uh, enjoying the flavors of food and drink. And it, it uh, just turned out that the more I looked at smell, the smells of food and drink, uh, the more I realized that they were often echoing the smells of other things in the world. And that in order to understand the flavors of food and drink, I would have to understand why it is that the rest of the world smells the way it does. And so that took me down a rabbit hole for 10 years. Can you just give one example of a food smell that that is replicated or recognizable in the world? So, for example, the smell of cucumbers in a salad, a green green plant, uh, actually has very much in common with the smells of uh, raw oysters from the ocean. And why is that? There are certain molecules that – first of all, fundamentally, when you smell something, it means molecules have left the thing and made it into your nose, right? That's right. Uh, smell, I, I think, is the actually our most direct contact with the material world around us because, you know, vision, we're seeing photons reflected off things and hearing, we're detecting pressure waves in the air. In the case of smell, we're actually detecting little bits of the world that are being liberated from the things around us, flying through the air up into our nose, and that's how we detect them. So that is either fantastic or creepy or both. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, what is my favorite thing? Your favorite thing, hold on, it's got to be evolution because I think I've moved to number two on your list. <laughs> yes, evolution. So the base of your brain is where this your smell comes from. It's like the oldest, the original sense is uh, the base of your brain is smell. And so is this a survival thing where you can tell something may or may not be edible by its smell? Well, it, it's uh, not just edible things, but, but yes, that's our first way of uh, beginning to judge whether the thing we're dealing with in the world is uh, potentially uh, helpful or potentially dangerous. Uh, and of course, it depends on the context. The, the con and the context that comes to mind is smoke. Some people yes. really like the flavor of barbecued food. Yeah. Is the smell of fear, is that a real thing that you can smell when somebody is afraid? Is that Do you pick up odors from other people that way? Is that another potential evolutionary significance? It is indeed, yeah. Uh, and the, the biology of body odor, uh, th that, that was a, a mini rabbit hole that I went down. It's, it's fascinating. So where you, somebody's nervous, they give off certain scents that we can detect. Well, they, they tend to give off a much stronger pulse of the molecules that we ordinarily give off in, in much milder doses. So is there like a master catalog of smells? Is there, you know, a list? Is there a number of known smells? There's a list of the smells that are found actually in outer space, but no list of the smells that are found here on Earth, I think, because it's, it's kind of... Um, an impossible task to track down each and every one of them. I mean, our our sense of smell is capable of detecting tens of thousands, if not more, uh, different molecules. And so we've just begun to uh, explore what's down here. So when we did the Science Guy show going on almost 30 years ago, we had one of the most popular titles is the Smell Show. We had a giant plastic nose, and it was funny. At that time, it was speculated that there were just five uh, smell receptors, 
And then every smell, it was postulated, was therefore a combination of not only the five smells, but the intensity of each one of the five. Is there anything to that? Uh, we've come a long way since then. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, the sense of smell was ignored by science for for a long, long time. Finally, in the year 2004, a Nobel Prize was awarded to the people who discovered the actual smell receptors rather than theorizing about them. And it turns out that we have around 400 of them. 400? Okay. Yes. That's still a finite number. Do you know what I mean? But it's, it's but, not but that's 100, four, but that's 400 then in combination, right? Exactly. Yes. Yes. So the, the potential number of combinations we're capable of detecting is huge. Uh, yes. My goodness. It's well, well, be 400 it's, factorial, I believe. Uh, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's a big yeah. number. And then it's not just factorial, Corey. There's the different intensities yeah. of each of the 400. So that's uh, right now, just in this conversation, we're going down a rabbit hole. When you say, Harold, when you say, I went down a rabbit hole about this, I went down a rabbit hole about that, what do you mean? You mean a detailed investigation? Exactly. Uh, it's just wonderful these days how easy it is to, to go down rabbit holes, uh, to, you know, to search the literature and find out what it is that we know. So, so how do you do smell research? I mean, was this a literature search? Were you actually out in the world seeking out different odors? Well, th that's what I loved about the subject, actually, is that I could I could do the research in the literature and then go out and sniff around and uh, and have a personal experience of the things that I was uh, learning about online. So, you know, people who are into wine tasting have all these fabulous ways of describing wine. You know, it's approachable, oaky finish, notes of fig and mineral. Okay, all right. If somebody says notes of fig, is it the same molecule in a fig that lights up the same combination of 400 receptors? It's likely to be that that uh, same molecule or set of molecules. Really? It's usually a, a chord of molecules rather than a single one. Um, a chord, you mean like a note, uh, musical notes, many yeah, notes exactly. combined. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly, yes. If someone is reporting... Uh, honestly, and of course, in wine tasting, there's also a lot of uh, show. <laughs> so you're trying to impress people with all the different notes that you can pick up. Yeah, you know, if I'm if I'm reporting honestly and I'm tasting this wine, it's like it's got it's got something that sort of tastes like old leather. I'm actually getting the same molecules as when I would smell an old leather chair. Yes. Uh, so what's happening is that the the same group of molecules is uh, being detected by your olfactory receptors, and then your brain is searching its database. You know, you're sipping wine, but your brain is saying, "Okay, I've I've encountered these before," and it then conjures up for you the an image of what it was that you first encountered those same molecules in. Uh, so along that line. Uh, we, you know, this is a call-in show. Can we roll the voicemail from Jennifer? Hi, Bill Nye. This is Jennifer from Philadelphia. What exactly is the link between smells and memory? Because if I smell something, it can take me back to a childhood memory that's so specific and so strong that I can't really describe it. It's just crazy how how it can just trigger a memory like that. So I was wondering what the science behind it was. 
Well, it has to do with that uh, that primitive connection that you described early on. The, the fact that the brain uh, and the nose are uh, more closely connected with each other than any of our other um, senses, and so the the moment we smell something, uh, we are uh, letting the, the the earliest relays in our brain know that we've encountered something significant, and that same area is involved in activating that database that I mentioned. The you know where have we encountered these things before? Is this because the the olfactory nerve is like a direct projection of the brain kind of into the outside world. Is that what you're describing? Exactly. Yeah. Which is completely different to what, what happens with vision or hearing or touch. Do people say to you, Harold McGee, you have a sharp palate? No. <laughs> In fact, I've, I've belonged to a couple of wine tasting groups and I've learned uh, more from the other people than the other way around. But the thing about wine tasting and and sitting around and enjoying uh, a meal with other people is that, um, you know, we all have different sets of receptors. We're all having a somewhat different experience of the things, the same things that we're enjoying, but we can help each other pick out details of that experience by talking about them and by bringing them up to, to consciousness. So it's, uh, I look at it as a very sociable thing. You know, you don't want to sit there by yourself analyzing. You want to be sharing your experience with other people. Is there a finite number of molecules, a finite number of scents, or is it just an unimaginably large number of scents, independent scents? That's a question about which olfactory scientists are still arguing. <laughs> so, <laughs> What's the right answer, man? <laughs> My sense is that um, planet Earth has a, has a finite number of smells, huge though it may be, because, you know, we've got the chemistry that we've got. But we also have chemists who are intent on exploring new areas of what they call odor space, and they may come up with, with new sensations that uh, we haven't encountered on Earth. Speaking of odor space, uh, my own personal rabbit hole that I'd like to go down for a moment. In the early days of the internet, this was maybe the late 90s when people were kind of obsessed with things you could do with online technology, there was a company that tried to make an odor box for the internet so you could send smells over the internet. We had smell-o-vision uh, movies. Right, that right. Was I think, I think thing, this right? was probably still based on the idea that, oh, you could just you know combine four or five different odors, and if you just mix them the right way, you would transmit a smell over the internet and have a shared smell experience online. Now that we know that there are these you know, 400 different receptors, is that a tractable problem? Could you actually build an internet smell box so that I could, you know, if I'm on a Zoom meeting and I want to share my wine experience with you, I could actually do it? I could kind of push it through the internet? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I'd, what you'd need to do is have at the uh, next to the computer of the person you were speaking with a box that would, on order from the the other person's computer, uh, release a particular set of volatiles in a particular pro set of proportions in order to have this a similar kind of effect. And the number of molecules you need to have in that box, I think, would just be well. At least at the moment, I think it's uh, it's unlikely to happen anytime soon. <laughs> so along that line, I'd like to roll the voicemail from Frankie. Hi, my name's Frankie. I read an article recently about how shrimps have sixteen color receptors compared to humans, which only have three, and so it allows shrimps to see this wider and broader range of colors. 
And I was wondering if you thought that this might be the case for other animals with something like smells. So whether other animals have more receptors, I guess, or sensory cells for smells. And could there be a wider range of smells that humans will just never be able to experience? A couple of points. One is that it's uh, we know for a fact that uh, other animals, dogs, for example, have many more olfactory receptors than humans do uh, by you know a, a factor of two or three. So lots, lots more. Uh, it doesn't appear, though, that uh, that makes a difference in the range of different molecules that they're able to detect. Because with four hundred, you can you can kind of cover thousands of thousands of potential uh, molecules. And so uh, it doesn't seem that uh, the number of recept receptors has so much to do with the range of things we can detect as the sensitivity with which we can detect them, you know, the, the, the number of molecules we can detect at one moment. It sounds like you're saying that we have access to essentially the entire smell space, that in principle, all the smells that are out there are accessible to us. Could there be smells that nobody has ever synthesized or nobody's ever experienced? Are there are there totally new smells that nobody has yet encountered? Yeah, like when somebody fabricates plastic. Is that a new smell? Yes, great question. So um, uh, it turns out that most of the smells of plastic are smells that we would have encountered in the world before the advent of plastics. It's just that uh, in plastics, they're much more evident. There are larger concentrations of those molecules. At every time we burn wood to make a wood fire, uh, we're generating a lot of the molecules that we find uh, evident in plastics. It's just that they're mixed up with so many other different molecules that we don't pick them out as, and uh, recognize them as such. Stick around for more Science Rules after this. Want to make Mom's Day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Science Rules is back. So when you say plastics have the same molecules coming off as wood fires, how do you know that? Do you look at the shape of the molecule or just the atoms that are in it? No, uh, we know that. Uh, I don't know it personally, directly, but chemists have figured that out by capturing smoke in a chamber and then analyzing the chemistry of the materials that they've trapped. And they're able to figure out to amazing accuracy and precision 
which molecules are in there and in what quantities and at what stage of the burning process as well. I mean, they uh, capture smoke as it starts, as it finishes. Exactly, exactly. Right. You, you talk about this in your book a little bit about using a gas chromatograph to study smells. What is a g gas chromatograph and what does it do? Well, so for a molecule to be smellable, it has to be volatile. That is to say, it has to fly through through the air out of the material that it's in and into the air, into our nose so that we can detect it with our receptors. And so what a gas chromatograph does is take a material and uh, generally speaking, it heats it until molecules begin to evaporate off the surface or off the, the liquid, if it's a liquid, or in the case of a gas like smoke, it's already volatile. Uh, and then it's able to separate the different molecules in that air uh, based on the size of the molecules. Uh, so it does this in, in a variety of ways, but it usually has to do with just making a very, very long tube and then the molecules kind of race each other to get to the end. And at the end of the tube, there's a detector. And so it detects which molecules are coming off at different times. It's a super chemical sniffer, in a sense. Yes. Can we roll the voicemail having to do with Strawberry? I don't think she gave us her name. Hey there. Uh, so I have a question. Why can we smell when things are strawberry scented when actual strawberries don't really have a scent? Well, uh, of course, strawberries do have scents. That's why we can have a strawberry scent. Uh, so strawberries, the, the fruits, uh, do give off volatile molecules in certain combinations that make us think, okay, that's a strawberry. We're able to identify it. And then what happens with, in the case of a candle is that the chemists at the candle company are able to take the information we have about what's in strawberry scent and uh, get those molecules made artificially and then add those molecules and only those molecules to the wax so that when the wax is warmed up by the flame, those same molecules waft off of the candle. When you talk about chemists at the candle company, I cannot help but think of, I believe their title is a nose and they, by long tradition, use scents from flowers, right? Yes. So uh, that's how they make their living is by being able to uh, dissect the natural aromas that uh, are around us and then take the information that that dissection gives us and then recon either reconstitute those same aromas or make interesting combinations that you would never find in nature. For example, perfumes where, you know, there might be molecules that one finds in uh, a wood resin, other molecules that you find in a flower, other molecule molecules that you find in a fruit. In perfume, you're able to combine those things into a pleasing mixture that, again, we would never encounter in nature. But it is volatized, made to evaporate, made the molecules by the heat of the human. Yes, yes. In order for molecules to be smellable, they have to leave the object and go into the air, and that's essentially evaporation. And so understanding why and how different molecules evaporate at different rates is part of the art artfulness of making perfume formulation. Hi, everyone at the Science Rules Podcast. Uh, my name is Haley, and back in November, I contracted COVID, 
I totally healed from it. I'm all good, but I still don't have my sense of smell back. And within the last month, it went from me having no smell to me having the smell of like burning trash and chemicals whenever I smell anything now, which is almost worse. So I was wondering if you guys could explain a little bit about why that is and if I have any hope to look forward to my normal smell returning soon. Thanks, you guys rock. Bye. Well, uh, I know that it has become a subject of great scientific and medical interest because we really didn't have anything like this phenomenon before COVID came along. Now that it's here, we have a lot of catching up to do because it really hadn't been studied. So what the caller described uh, is what the, the olfactory scientists call parosmia, which is smelling things but not smelling things as they actually are. It's almost like having visual hallucinations or like a phantom limb kind of phenomenon. It's they're fake stimuli. Yeah, they're detecting actual smells, but the brain is misinterpreting them for some reason. And that reason has yet to be figured out. There's a lot of active research on it now. And there's a, an organization in the UK, absent.org, A-B-S-C-E-N-T.org, which is uh, crowdsourcing exactly that kind of uh, experience so that scientists have more case studies to, to be able to try to make sense of what's going on. Can we roll the voicemail from Andrew? Hi, Bill. My name is Andrew. Um, I was wondering how terpenes affect the way that cannabis affects the user and in what ways can you possibly um, interpret what effects the cannabis may have on you. Could, could you use your nose to better understand how each different type of cannabis and the terpenes that are in there, how that cannabis may affect you versus another one. I think he's asking, can you sniff the difference between good pot and bad pot? Is that basically what he's asking? <laughs> uh, that's what it sounds like, yes. Uh, and to my knowledge, at the moment anyway, the answer is no, not yet. Uh, because, of course, most of the effects uh, of cannabis have to do with molecules that are not volatiles. It's, it's really? THC and its relatives, yes. Uh, but it has a distinctive smell. My goodness, you walk down the street nowadays, uh, you smell it all the time. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and the smells are, as he said, terpenes, these molecules that you find actually in, in many different plant materials that help give those plant materials their identity. And so that's how we can detect the fact that there are, that there is cannabis in the air. The presence of terpenes and the presence of the, the psychoactive materials apparently is not, are not linked. They're, they're found in the same, you know, hairs that are on the marijuana leaves and buds. Uh, so they are found in the same place, but the pathways to making them are different. And so one is not necessarily a good guide to the presence of the other. I was just wondering, you were talking about, you know, smoke and plastic and marijuana, these, these sort of like common families. Are there sort of families of smells, families of molecules that exist in plants and different families that exist in animals? Because certainly there's sweet, perfumey smells that I think of as uniquely plant, and there are the smell of a steak or the, or, or the smell of body odor. You know, there are things that seem kind of uniquely animal. Are those whole different categories of, of molecules? 
They are indeed. That was a, a very a very deep rabbit hole. Is one understanding why it is that plants and animals are just generically different in the way they smell. And it basically has to do with the fact that the smells of animals, uh, us included, are kind of accidental. Uh, you know, they're the, the product of uh, essentially our microbiomes, the microbes that live on our skin and live inside us and do lots of good things for us, but they're also living off of our materials. And so they're breaking them down and emitting these um, kind of smokestack emissions for a microbe uh, that are just uh, the accidental byproducts of their metabolism. In the case of plants, the plants are actually intentionally, so to speak, making these molecules for a purpose. Uh, the purpose generally being either to repel animals that are going to try to eat them or to attract animals that would help spread their pollen and spread their fruits. So two completely different uses of the same, same uh, volatile materials. If humans have this accidental smell, here's an old uh, question. Can dogs smell cancer? Is that a real thing? It is a real thing. It is a real thing. And in fact, uh, not just cancer, but all kinds of diseases. Because, you know, when, when our metabolism is uh, deranged by disease, when, you know, things begin to go wrong, then we end up leaving uh, traces of that uh, derangement in our bodies. So the usual pathways for producing the, the various molecules that make us up they get tweaked, and uh, they get tweaked in ways that are detectable uh, in the, the molecules that they generate. And dogs can be trained to pick out those particular molecules wow. and identify them. So are you suggesting that your uh, gas chromatograph colleagues could create a cancer-detecting system? Is that somebody's working on that? Yeah, that's a very active area of research, and not just in cancer, but all kinds of diseases that can produce these kinds of mistaken volatile products. So you could, you could design like an electronic nose that would be able to pick up disease? Yes, that's a relatively simple task compared to you know trying to identify lots and lots of different molecules all at once. If you know that a particular molecule is associated with a disease, then you can very easily build a machine that just detects that particular molecule. When it starts to rain, what the heck? What is the smell of rain? Ah, the smell of rain, it's a, it's a wonderful story. When the air gets wet or when the soil gets wet as the rain begins to penetrate dry soil, uh, what happens is that volatile molecules, the molecules that are flying through the air into our noses, uh, they, by their chemical nature, tend not to enjoy the presence of water. It's like oil and vinegar in a salad dressing. The volatile molecules are more like the oil than like the vinegar. And so, so they're, if, they're repelled by the water molecules. Exactly, exactly. And, and so what that means is that um, there are dust particles in the air, there is dry soil with all kinds of volatile molecules um, trapped in them and on them. The moment the environment gets wet, those molecules tend to be released from those dry materials and they come out in a pulse that's intense enough that we can actually pick them up. And you can tell the difference between rain, on, rain in a forest and rain on a street. Uh, concrete, whatever. 
Right, but what's interesting is, I mean, they're different, but they're not completely different. There is something there is something similar. Is it because you know, there's some dust, there's some of the same things everywhere, even if you're in a city? Exactly. Uh, what's happening in the period between rains is that uh, all the materials of the life that's going on in that place are being released into the air and accumulating on on these dust particles. And, you know, life is life. So there, there is a kind of a baseline of smell that you're going to find pretty much everywhere. And then the details have to do with whether it's a forest or a city or a subway or whatever it happens to be. I got an idea here. Let's roll that voicemail from Meg. This is going to, this can be a tri- This can be a segue, Corey. This is going to be like real radio here. Hi there. My name is Meg. What is the actual chemical compound behind old person smell? Sometimes it's in sweaters. Sometimes you just pass houses that it's there. What is it? So uh, it turns out that uh, a fair amount of research has been done on this subject, mostly in Japan, actually. The answer is uh, particular uh, fragments of the oils that naturally lubricate the surface of our skin. So, um, you know, unless we have really badly dry skin, our our skin is constantly replenishing itself with uh, protective oils that, you know, prevent us from, you know, absorbing all the water that's in the bathtub and that kind of thing. It's a, it's a protective thing. But they're oils, and oils are large molecules that themselves don't have a smell. But when uh, oxygen or light from the sun hit those molecules, they will fragment into smaller bits of themselves, and those are volatile, and those can leave our body, fly through the air, and into our noses. This is a sebum, is the classic skin oil, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, sebum is actually a, a really complicated mixture of oils and waxes and you know, lots of other things. But it's not understood why it is that the sebum of a particular person changes with age, but it does. And we can detect that by uh, the presence of particular smells that belong to particular fragments of the, of the sebum molecule. So your, your smell keeps changing over the course of a lifetime? Apparently so, yes. Not uh, not something that's easily studied because there's so many other things going on as one lives, but yes. Science Rules will be right back. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. You're listening to Science Rules. 
we have a game we want to play called What's That Smell? It's one of our favorite games. No, so air-dried laundry. Uh, so air-dried laundry is, in fact, a, a, a different version of what I just described going on on the skin of people. So if you put freshly laundered sheet out on a line, you're exposing it both to oxygen in the air and to ultraviolet uh, radiation from the sun. And those two things together break down the traces of oils that are in the laundry and generate that wonderful it's smell. It's ultraviolet, my ah. friends, ultraviolet. What about old books? Ah, and old books, uh, some of my favorite things in the world. I started out studying literature. So uh, in the case of old books, what you're smelling are carbon rings that actually originated in the wood that the paper was made from as structural materials. And so it turns out that those structural materials, the, the lignin that makes wood hard, uh, when they're broken down in the process of paper making and then in the aging of the paper itself, you end up generating individual rings rather than the, the aggregate. And some of those individual rings are recognizable as, for example, the smell of vanilla. So mm -hmm. the smell of vanilla is huh. largely one particular carbon ring called vanillin because that's where it comes from. Uh, and that's a, a really important aspect of the smell of old books. Okay. What about the opposite of old books, new car smell? Oh, I love new car smell. Crazy. Car Innova. I got a new car about a year ago and, and it made me kind of excited. My daughters hated it. They refused to get in the car. They were like very They didn't upset like the smell getting... of new no, cars? No. God, you it... talk about kids today. Kids today. Dog. Well, to them, it, smell, it smelled like nasty plastic, which I'm sure is at least part of what it is. Is that, is new car smell just volatiles coming off the plastics or what is it? Yeah. So the, the, the objects in a new car are largely plastic and the plastics have been formed with the help of solvents. And there are traces of the solvents left in those plastics. And when you leave your car, you know, locked and windows up in the sun, uh, it gets pretty hot in there. Those solvents get volatilized. They end up in the air uh, and, in fact, can, can form a fog on the windshield. So your kids are right to be uh, at least aware of the fact that these are not necessarily the greatest things for you to breathe in any quantity. You know, it's it's nice to get a trace, but open the windows and get some fresh air. Oh, speaking of which, armpit smell. What is armpit smell? Uh, uh, armpit smell, uh, again, a little bit involved. Uh, so uh, <laughs> it's it's generated with the help of the microbes that live in our skin. And uh, so they're they're chomping down on the the proteins and the fats that are in our skin and uh, thriving and in the process giving off the, the byproducts of that digestion, which are not necessarily so nice. Same, same with us in our digestion, by the way. But it turns out that there's a set of notes in human armpit smell that are actually designed to be smelly. Our bodies make them intentionally and then push them up to the surface where these microbes can then get to work on them. And what they do is that they take these um, manufactured smell molecules that are kind of locked up chemically, 
in our bodies, once they reach the surface, these, these microbes can unlock them and release them. And so give the world notice of our presence. <laughs> and this is uh, an old evolutionary relationship. Yeah, there's a famous story, it might be apocryphal, that, that uh, when Napoleon was away on one of his campaigns, he wrote to Josephine and told her, you know, don't bathe for a month before I get back because I really want to smell you full and rich. Ah, mm. he and I, well, we saw the world very differently. Uh, he was fluent in French, for example. Yeah. It, Let's see, there's a couple more we, we need badly. Cat pee. Yes, cat pee, uh, very distinctive. And uh, it's actually uh, related to the story about why human armpits smell the way they do. Cats mark their territory with their pee, and they make a particular molecule. Uh, it's a kind of slow-release smell. Uh, so that it is there from the moment the cat pees, but then it's released gradually over the course of hours and days so that uh, the cat doesn't have to keep coming back and re refreshing its its marks. Refreshing, Corey. <laughs> refreshing its marks. Can we go all the way back around? What is the smell of space? Oh, yes. It's come to my favorite topic. Well, space, of course, would only have a smell if we could actually survive up there and breathe and bring these volatile molecules into our noses. And we would really have to have uh, more than human sensitivity to those molecules because they're pretty sparse. But it turns out that uh, very early on in the history of the universe, Smells that we would recognize on Earth began to appear in the cosmos uh, because it's in the nature of the elements that were created in stars to react with each other uh, just on their own. It doesn't require any microbes or li life of any kind. It's just in the nature of carbon and oxygen and hydrogen in particular that when they're nearby and when they have the right uh, conditions, they will combine with each other. And so radio astronomers have been accumulating over the course now of several decades a list of the molecules that they've been able to detect in outer space by virtue of the uh, usually the absorption of energy that's characteristic of those particular molecules. And so every couple of years, there's a census published of the molecules that have been found in space. It's now in the middle 200s of molecules. And I would say maybe half of those are things that we would actually recognize huh. here on Earth. Now, what about, wow. what about the moon? Do we know why the moon smells like gunpowder? Or do we have any idea what Mars would smell like? Uh, that's a good question, and I don't know. Uh, I really don't know what, what the thinking is about Mars. In the case of gunpowder in the moon, gunpowder, that smell has to do with uh, sulfur in one of its oh. many different guises. And so what that suggests to me is that there, there is uh, sulfur minerals on the surface of the moon, and it ends up in the dust. And when you bring it into an oxygen atmosphere, uh, we begin to notice things that we recognize here. All right. So one of the classic uh, things is you come into somebody's house and you smell something. Uh, and then the person says, what smell? What is that? Yeah, that's, that's called adaptation. Uh, you adapt to the presence of a smell. And it, it makes good biological sense because our, our, our senses are generally trying to tell us moment to moment 
whether things are okay or not. The uh, change is maybe more important than the background smell, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and so if you're living in, in a house and you're encountering the same smells over and over again, then your your brain eventually says, okay, I got it, it's here, it's okay, we'll pay attention to other things. The same thing happens, by the way, in eating and drinking. It happens on the time scale of seconds. And so you can adapt to the presence of particular flavors in food and drink, and they become less evident the longer the meal goes on. Oh, wow. That's why, like, that like in be... wine tasting, you eat a cracker or you do something between tastings to reset. Is that why? Yeah. And also, I mean, in the last uh, couple of decades, chefs have been really interested in these uh, tasting menus that, you know, have 40 or 50 different dishes. And that's partly because when they heard about this, they thought, okay, well, I don't want anybody adapting to the dish that I've spent hours and hours creating. So I'm going to give them one hit of an amazing flavor, and then it's over and on to the next one and the next one and the next one. So the, the, the contrast is important. You've talked about a whole category of smells that are associated with life and smells that are associated with what I call nature, you know, just kind of like you know, sulfur, these things you talking about the compounds shortly after the Big Bang. Does that mean like a living planet smells different than a dead planet? Uh, is, that, Whoa, is, that a, is that a general dude, category? That's that you like could... so out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, of course, the, the Earth was a dead planet for a long time uh, until life came along. And the best we can tell, the, the atmosphere would have smelled like it smells around a volcano that's uh, active, oh, wow. you know? That Lots is sulfur. Of, I can tell from experience. That is sulfur smell. Yeah, sulfur and ammonia and just all kinds of strong elemental generally speaking, toxic smells. So, Corey, I, I, I'm sensing a tortured segue here. You know, I, I've spent time at volcanoes, and once in a while, the plume, the, the steam rising is so, uh, is so fast. The, the static electricity creates lightning, and you can hear this sound, Corey. You can hear this sound. Oh, my God. It's the sound of lightning and, I might add, the smell of ozone. So that tells me that it is yes. the lightning round. What is your favorite smell that you describe in your new book? It's actually the smell of a, a wood that I had never smelled before I wrote the book. Uh, it comes from a South Asian tree that's infected with a fungus. And in defense of itself, it produces this resin that is uh, just wonderful. And it's called agar wood or oud, O-U-D. They put it in perfume? What do they do with it? Yeah, per perfumers, uh, it's used in incense. So uh, not so easy to find, but you can find it. What about the worst smell? The worst smell, I would have to say, is surstroming, which is a fermented Scandinavian herring that is kept in tin cans. And, <laughs> For a uh, reason, apparently. <laughs> And the way you judge whether it's going to be good is to what extent the, the can resembles not so much a tin can as a football. It swells up with the gases inside. You've done food and cooking, and now you've done smell or scent. What's your next adventure in writing? <laughs> I think I'm probably going to go back to cooking because the, the book I wrote about cooking is now 20 years old. 
and uh, a lot has changed in these last 20 years. So I think I may revisit that subject. Oh, man, uh, we, we are looking forward to that. Okay, here's, here's the last, I think, the last lightning round question. What does a podcast smell like? <laughs> Is it the smell well, of fear? <laughs> <laughs> For me right now, it's the smell of my laptop. And that's uh, phenol and formaldehyde coming oh, off of man, the circuit boards. Oh, I love that. <laughs> a nice uh, FRP, fiberglass reinforced plastic circuit board. Uh, you know, I used to have a job. I worked on avionics, airplane electronics, and the smell of the circuit board shop was just, that was progress. The acids and the fiberglass and the copper, it was just a fabulous smell. Oh, and how about the smell of uh, solder? You know, the, the rosin in solder as it melts. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. tell us about the smell of solder, that rosin, because that is a saddest. When you're a kid building a radio, that is a pretty great smell. What is that? I don't think it's used anymore. But back in the old days, when you and I were building electronics, solder had a core of uh, pine resin. And that actually would help prevent the metals in the solder from oxidizing. So it would help keep the, the joint electrically conductive and so on. Well, for those of us who grew up playing a stringed instrument, yeah, rosin had this whole other thing. You, know, you you'd, you'd put rosin on your bow to get good contact with the string, and you get that smell of rosin as you're playing. So this is great. This is just fantastic. This discussion of the sense of the world. Our guest today has been Harold McGee. His new book is Nosedive. A Field Guide to the Worlds of Smells. You see what he did there? Nosedive. See that, people? So remember, when it comes to figuring out what that smell is, everyone, science, science rules. rules. And if you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out. It helps us learn what people want to find out about. So we'll put it on the show. So thank you. And be sure to look at my socials, as the kids call them, for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye and all those things. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785. Today's voicemails, I thought, were especially informative. You can submit a question, of course, also on the electric internet at askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and this very same Corey S. Powell. My pleasure. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martiran is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everyone, of course, Science, Science Rules. rules. Stitcher. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.